The Paul Leslie Hour, helping people tell their stories. And now, your host, Paul Leslie. Hey, it's me. How's it going, folks? It's an extreme honor to be welcoming Adam Duritz. He's a singer, songwriter, record producer, frontman for the band Counting Crows, a band that sold more than 20 million albums internationally. Adam Duritz is also co-host of the podcast Underwater Sunshine, which is a conversation series he does with author and journalist James Campion. He's also the executive producer of a music festival, Underwater Sunshine Fest. It's a great pleasure to have him here. Mr. Duritz, how are you, sir? I'm good, man. How you doing? Oh, I'm doing good. Well, we have a couple of things that we're going to be talking about. But what's on a lot of people's mind right now, the very first album by Counting Crows, August and Everything After, which was released more than 25 years ago now, did not have a song called August and Everything After on it. But that song is now available. People can get it on Amazon. So what does it feel like releasing that song, August and Everything After, all these years after the first draft? Um, it feels like a new song, really. Um, I never really thought of it much back then. It, it, uh, it just wasn't very good. And so I kind of tossed it aside and didn't think about it for a really long time. You know, it was, uh, it was kind of, it's kind of cool to finish it though. When you release a song like that, does the fan reaction matter to you? Do you find yourself looking online, seeing what people are saying about it? Um, it completely matters to me. I haven't, I'm not sure how they're, what they're saying about it though. It, it absolutely matters to me. I just haven't been checking a lot. I don't know. I mean, I would hope it would, you know, cause a whole sensation and people would go crazy. That would be fantastic. I don't know if that's actually taking place or not, but personally, I would love that. I saw a lot of comments from people on YouTube. People were saying that it had brought tears to their eye. That's a good reaction. (laughs) That sounds good. We're always trying to break people. (laughs) That's definitely always been the aim of our band. (laughs) We want to get them bummed out. When I think about a lot of your lyrics, they're, to me anyways, really, really emotional. They seem very, very personal. Do you ever hold back any of the, the personal feelings you have, or do you feel it's best to express them in the songs? Well, you want to express as much as possible. I'm sure we all hold back certain things, you know, because you also have to make choices about what you want to share and what you don't want to share. But obviously the aim is always to be as, you know, as open and to communicate as much feeling as possible. I mean, I think that was part of the problem for me with the original version of the song is that there were parts of it that were really good. And there were parts of it that sounded like songwriting. And I don't mean that they shouldn't, but it, they weren't as good. They just sounded good. You know, they were kind of not meaningful. There were chunks of the song that just were more aping good songwriting than actually being good songwriting. You know, there's a lot of words that sound poetic and sound meaningful. And there's ways to say things that seem like something that actually aren't. And I felt like, you know, that's a, that's a problem a lot of young songwriters have when you're first starting out. You know, you write like other good stuff you've heard as opposed to writing like yourself. And I I think that was a big problem with this song originally was that there were just chunks of it that sounded good. But when I played them, they didn't really feel like anything, you know, and it's a 
it's a long song to have big chunks where it's not meaningful. Although I think truthfully, there's only two kinds of songs, ones that are done and ones that are crap. You know, I mean, like, <laughs> it's not like you're not allowed to have any sections that are crap, really, in a song. You have to get it right. But especially in an eight-minute song or a nine-minute song, you start having, you have 30% of an eight-minute song that's not very good. That's, that's the length of a regular song, you know? It's a, that's, a, that's a lot of time. I'm hoping you can tell us about one of the lyrics from the song. This really struck me. We're getting older and older and older and older and always a little further out of the way. I'm hoping you can talk about that. Well, just that you start to feel like you're less at the center of things, center of your own life, the center of the world around you. You're just fading into the background. It's funny that I wrote that when I was 20-something. But, but you know, when you're in your late 20s, it feels kind of old at the time. More than it does later, it's your first experience. Your 20s are your first experience of really being an adult. You know, and so as you get later in them, it can feel really like time is really passing you by, especially if you're a musician, because sometimes you haven't gotten anywhere in your life yet. And it really feels like, you know, at a certain point, you're, you're a kid with all this potential and everyone's telling you how, how bright your future is. And, you know, when you're a kid, there are people around you telling you about your future. And then when you get to be an adult, you're sort of trying to make your future. And when it doesn't happen right away or for a while, start to feel like what happened to all that potential that instead of having a big future, you just have kind of a past where people told you about one. And that can be difficult. Hmm. You know, I, I mean, I, I'm not exactly sure what I meant when I said it, but I probably something like that. This kind of brings to mind the interview that you did with Soda Jerker on songwriting. You were saying that you developed this, identity of yourself from a pretty young age you knew what you were i am a songwriter you said i'm just curious because when you have a, an identity like that sometimes the the feedback and results aren't as tangible when you compare it to something like somebody who decides to go work for a bank or uh, being a real estate broker or something were there any times when after you had that identity that you found yourself doubting yourself and what you were supposed to do. Oh yeah. I mean, I would say nearly constantly because and I think this probably happens to every artist because you realize who you are maybe before other people, but getting anywhere with it can take longer if it ever happens. Because the truth is most artists never experience any sort of career success. You, you have to judge your success as an artist by like what you create because 99.999% of artists never sell anything. No paintings, no sculptures, no dances, no songs. You know, most don't. And so, like, you know, when I'm getting into my late 20s at that point, it must have felt like a realistic view of it was this is where it was going to be. This is what was going to happen. Because it is kind of likely when you're making art that, you know, the art will be the success. But as far as like taking care of yourself or making money or having a career, those things just don't happen very often. And, you know, and so for me at the age of 27 or 28, whenever that was, I imagine I was starting to really like try to look at that clearly and say like, well, this is, you know, life is going to be like this. And, and that's scary. Even though, you know, you know who you are, you don't know how you're going to take care of yourself. 
you don't know how you're going to do in life and you don't know where you're going to end up. And that, that can be pretty scary. You know, I mean, our history is filled with a gazillion stories of artists with bad endings, you know, yeah, and hard lives. It often is. I mean, the truth is things change for us and it turned into like a one in a billion thing, but that's not very realistic. And every artist has to kind of come to grips with that and be okay with that. You know, this is going to be hard. And I think I was really, because, you know, I didn't, we didn't get discovered when we were 18. Or, I was 27 the first time anybody from a record company even came to see a band I was in. I was 28 when we got signed, 29 when our first record came out. You know, so it was, it was not like it just happened. There were a lot of years of, you know, wondering. You know, I had friends who ended up having many, many more years of that. But, I didn't know that yet when I started writing this song. It was just, that's where life was at. I was probably 27, 28, you know, not really sure what was going to happen. I was sure of who I was, but just not really sure of what that meant. Hmm. I'm hoping you can tell us about Vince Mendoza, the composer and arranger that you worked with on this song. Well, I was introduced to Vince by Joni Mitchell. We were actually mixing hard candy and she was working down the hall in the studio mixing her record travelogue and we got to hang out one day and we played her our version of big yellow taxi not the one that's on the radio that's a remix of it but the one that's just kind of an acoustic sort of hip-hop song and she loved it and she said do you want to come down and listen to some of my record i said sure and she took me down to this room and we sat there and she played me i mean i, I kept asking her to play me more so we were there for about an hour maybe hour and a half. I don't know. She played me a lot of Travelogue. And Travelogue and the record before it, Both Sides Now, she had done with Vince Mendoza. Both Sides Now is mostly standards with a couple of her songs at the end of each side. Uh, I think Both Sides Now and A Case of You. And then Travelogue is all of her songs reimagined with a different band that involves like Brian Blades, the drummer from New Orleans, Wayne Shorter, the jazz uh, player, and, uh, and then Vince doing all the orchestration. And I was so blown away by the work he did on that record. And then even more so when the record came out, just knocked out by it. And I always remembered that after that, because it was a pretty, I mean, getting out with Joni Mitchell anyways, is a pretty, you know, you're going to remember that for the rest of your life. And uh, so uh, years after that, there was uh, some company doing shows. They did like three or four shows around America with bands and orchestras. And they asked us to do the one in L.A at the Disney Hall, the Frank Erie building out in, in uh, downtown LA. And I said I would do it on one condition. They had to get us Vince Mendoza. And if they could get Vince Mendoza, I would do it. And otherwise, no. You know. And they found Vince and he was into it. So we kind of got together and talked about the songs. We, we chose different songs to work on. And he listened to this song and came up with a bunch of ideas. And then he started working on orchestration. And the show turned out really well. But as we were working on it, we actually talked about kind of trying to surprise people with a couple songs. And one of the ones we did was Chelsea, which was an outtake from Recovering the Satellites. Things get left off our album for a variety of reasons. It's not usually because that song's not good enough. It's more often, well, that was the case with August and everything after. But sometimes they just don't fit in the sequence. And I couldn't find a place to put Chelsea on that record. It was a different song. It was just me on piano 
And then three friends of mine from Sea Rebels Brass Band in New Orleans playing trumpet, sax, and trombone. So it was like a brass trio and a guitar, I mean, and a piano. And so it was pretty different from everything else on the record, and I just couldn't find a way to fit it in. So we decided to do a version of Chelsea in that show at Disney Hall. And I sort of thought, I wonder about, I told them I had written this song or started to write it years before called August and Everything After, and maybe that would be cool. That It was pretty simple and it would need a rewrite, but maybe we should check it out. And uh, it's funny. I mean, I really, when I threw it away, I really threw it away. I hadn't, it's not like something that we had that I'd been playing a lot at shows. I think I pulled it out two or three times over all those intervening years and played it in concert. And each time it was kind of like, it would start off good and then it would kind of like midway through, I'd realize, oh, this is why I left this off the record. It just ended up kind of plotting and draggy and not good. And uh, as a result of that, I didn't have any, I didn't have a version of it. <laughs> and I realized I didn't really remember it. I remembered the music, but not the lyrics. And so I actually went on Twitter and said, does anybody have a copy of August and Everything After the song? Because <laughs> I, don't, I don't have it. And I can't remember how it goes and it needs to be rewritten. And so uh, actually someone sent me a copy of it in MP3 and then uh, I looked at it and I was like, Oh yeah, I see the problems, you know? Um, so I, you know, I read a bunch of it then. I don't know when that was. It's mid two thousands. Vince came up with a really cool arrangement for that. And we ended up doing that in the show too. And uh, it was kind of my favorite thing in the show. So it's a uh, working with Vince was so memorable. The problem was we didn't record the show. I mean, the only recording we got was the board tape. Now, the problem with board tapes of orchestra shows is that not everything is actually running through the board, particularly, you know, like you're, cause you're not amplifying. I mean, all the band runs through the board and strings run through it, uh, quiet things, but like our flute or a woodwind might run through it, but brass, for instance, or percussion, not really at all because they're, they're already loud. And so I have recordings of that show, but you can't hear most of the orchestra or at least, you know, yeah, like two thirds of the orchestra is inaudible. And we didn't record it because it was really prohibitively expensive. Like just the union fees before you even get to recording costs were like $400,000 for the, the orchestra union, the Disney hall uh, fee, the, whatever. There were like three different fees that added up to like $400,000 before you even got to recording costs. So we thought maybe we better do this once and see how it turns out before we go spending all this money to record it. Cause it might've been a half million dollars to record it, you know? So we didn't, but the thing, the bummer about it was that it was like the most extraordinary performance of our lives and we didn't record it. And we've wanted for years to get back and do some of that again, but it's always been kind of expensive and we just never really got really down to the nuts and bolts of finding a way to do it more reasonably. Until this thing came up this year with Amazon, you know, Amazon wanted to do a song like that. We talked about doing a concert, but they suggested just doing a song and we really wanted to. So we ended up choosing long, uh, not a long December. They originally suggested, let's do a long December and release it in December. And I said, well, that, that sounds fun, but <laughs> it's not, that song won't actually benefit very much from an arrangement. We should, I know what we should do is we actually have a song that's perfect because it's uh, got some crazy name recognition, but no one's ever heard it. I suggested doing August and everything after. It still needed a little bit of rewriting, actually. 
it was, you know, I got most of the things fixed when we did it for that concert, but there were, I was kind of hurrying and there were a couple of details. That I think I finally got it right for this performance. I guess I didn't really tell you about Vince. I more told you the story. <laughs> it's okay. You were mentioning everybody out there, they can get this on Amazon. But also, I thought this was really interesting because I, I listened to your podcast, Underwater Sunshine. You just gave it away to everybody also on the podcast. That would seem like contrary to what a lot of people would do. But what made you decide to do that? Well, I, I thought it would serve as a pretty good advertisement for the Amazon thing. Um, as well, and draw a lot of attention to it. But I don't know. I was told it was okay to do it. We had, we were happy. We were doing this long podcast where we were only talking. We had been, you know, the podcast can be about whatever we want it to be about. And on this particular podcast, we just got into talking about sports for the longest time. Yeah. And we had talked for like maybe an hour and a half. I don't know why, like an hour about, and we hadn't played any music. And it was, it was the first time that had happened, really. You know, and and James turned to me at one point and said. Well, what are we going to do? Are we going to make this the first podcast where we don't play any music? Or is there anything you want to play? Should we talk about something musical? Because we've only talked about sports so far. Or do you have any sports songs? You know, he was, I don't know what he said. He was joking around with me. And I suddenly thought about this because it was like coming out the next day. And I said, hang on a second. And I, we paused everything and I actually called and said, am I allowed to do this? And, and they said, yeah. So put it on the podcast. Yeah. Is there a certain ritual that you go through when you do these podcasts with James? No, they're just, uh, they're about as free form as you, well, that's not totally true. Sometimes we just talk and things come up musically and we play them. Sometimes they're more thematic uh, and we've really prepared. When we did the four week series on punk, like from 68 to 80, I had done, I mean, we had been researching, I probably 12 hours of research over the time to put that together. And I had really mapped it all out, thought of the songs I wanted to play. I had stories about everybody. I had, I had pages and pages of notes going into that. Sometimes it's like that, you know, like I, we're doing one the next few weeks. We, we just started it this week on Ron Wood and Rod Stewart and their incredible output for a few years around 1970 in the faces and the Rod Stewart records, the two of them making these records together with two different bands and they're incredible. And, you know, for that, I, you know, I, I've been spend a bunch of time listening, reading. I've been working on one about a Richard Thompson retrospective for a month or two now, uh, that it's not, I'm just not ready to do it yet. So sometimes we really put a lot of work into them and a lot of preparation. Um, and sometimes they're more free form and sometimes we're just trying to surprise each other by playing new music. The other person probably hasn't heard. Uh, and like, sometimes we like, for the Rod Stewart stuff, uh, we're feeding a lot of our ideas back and forth so we can talk about it. But when I'm doing new music stuff, I often just want to surprise James. And uh, so they, it goes both ways. You know, they, they have no real, it's funny, it's a lot like Kevin Crane and my songwriting. There's no real set way of doing everything, but we're open to a bunch of different stuff. You mentioned in one of the episodes of the podcast about an upcoming Counting Crows album. What do you envision the next? County Crows album is going to be like? Oh, I have no idea. I mean, it'll turn out to be however it turns out. I don't really ever, I mean, I, I don't think about that stuff at all, except the songs, you know, getting the songs together, but I don't, I'm not really trying to form a record before it 
it just comes into being by itself. Cause I, I think you want to give it a chance to be organic and surprise yourself and let the music surprise you. Yeah. Cause I, I'm kind of, in, I mean, sometimes I'll have some thoughts about like sounds or ideas about the way things should be. I certainly have in the past at times, like I knew with recovering the satellites that it was a very different set of songs and very different, a lot of the music from August. And so I knew I wanted Gil Norton. His work with the Pixies, I thought was, you know, generationally important. And so I, I knew he was what I wanted for that record. I knew it was what that needed. And I guess by the same token on the next record, I really, I knew we wanted to experiment a lot. And so getting Dennis Herring and David Lowry, who had, you know, done the Sparkle Horse records together, you know, was a little more kind of the indie creativity we were looking for. But that's as far as it'll go, really. I might think about producers in terms of that sort of thing, but I don't know. Not so much lately. But I've been really enjoying working with Brian Deck. It's the first time we've really worked with a guy on multiple occasions, except for we did with Gil, because Gil came back and did Saturday Nights with us. But we've done a couple albums with Brian now, and I really loved it. You were mentioning earlier about going on Twitter and just asking anybody if they had a version of that song. And that's something that you do is that you're, you're the one who's running the social media for the band. What do you find that that experience is like? Um, well, I really loved it at first. I mean, it occurred to me pretty early on that the internet was something that could cross that gap between artists and people you know that used to have to go through some gatekeepers for that tv people or newspaper people journalists you know you had to go through gatekeepers as an artist to get to the public but i can remember right after i moved to la so it's right after we finished touring august and everything after like early 1995 and i remember being in my in the college i lived in in hollywood and realizing that AOL had these forums for all the different bands and that there was a Counting Crows forum and people were on there asking questions and talking about stuff and wondering what was going to happen with our band. And I went on there and said, I realized I could answer their questions, that all the things they were worried about, I had the answers to. <laughs> and so I went on there and I said, you know, I'm me, let's talk. And they didn't believe me at first. So I, you know, but I found ways to prove it. And we started this almost like, message group on this forum that was in its own way in 1995, an early version of social media. It's like Twitter or Facebook before Twitter and Facebook. I thought it was really important way back then. And I also realized way back then there were trolls <laughs> that you would end up arguing with people about stuff that, you know, I remember going on there and saying how great I thought Justin Timberlake's album was. And then I thought they were all had their heads up their ass about like not liking any sort of pop or funk music, you know? And then I said, you, you know, it, Years from now, you're all going to be worshiping the Neptunes and Pharrell and Timbaland who produced this record. And, and they were all up in arms about me. You know, it was like sacrilege that I would be listening to this stuff. And I was like, no, you're just, you're crazy. It's great music. You know, and, and it was like a very vehement argument about it. But, you know, it was, you know, it was social media just like it is now, but not, no one was thinking of it as social media because, it was just, they were just forums at the time. Hmm. That brings to mind, what misconceptions do you think people have about you? Because these people on this message board, they thought 
oh, Adam would never like that band or that producer. What do you think are, is, is maybe a misconception that people have about you? Oh, I don't know. I, probably that I mope around all the time. Um, <laughs> I, I, don't, I mean, I think in general, there's a way that fans and the media think of music that's very different from the way musicians do. You know, we gather together in tribes, in, in gangs, uh, that we, we're punk, we're not punk. We're new wave, we're, we're grunge, you're not grunge, you're pop. You know, like, I'm indie, you're not. You know, there's all kinds of ways in which we, you know, and the radio is separated out that way too. We're listening to modern rock, we're listening to classic rock, we're listening to adult alternative. And, and you know, we're listening to hip hop. And we're cool because we listen to this kind of music and you're not because you listen to that kind of music. But musicians tend to just love music. So there's all these divisions that go on, all these value judgments. I mean, music's different from other art forms in that we literally wear it. Not just our hearts on our sleeves, but we wear our shirts that say The Clash or De La Soul or uh, Stephen Kellogg. You know, we literally wear clothes that proclaim, I love this band. Yeah. Because that's important to the way we see ourselves. But musicians who also wear those clothes tend to just love music. They just, I lived in LA for a while and a lot of my friends were working in the movie business and they spent a lot of their time telling everybody what sucked, what movie sucked, what actor sucks, who shit, what, and it's funny sometimes, but it's not a big help in finding a great movie to see. But musicians just want to shove down your throat the latest band they, they've discovered that they love. And they just want to get a mixtape and shove it down your throat and make you listen to it. <laughs> I mean, they're, which is what the podcast is all about. And by extension, what the festival is all about. We're a bunch of geeks who love music and love generally all kinds of music. You know, uh, most musicians I know listen to all different kinds of music. They listen to country, they listen to rock, they listen to metal, they listen to punk, they listen to hip hop, they listen to soul, they listen to R&B. You know, it's, they listen to jazz. It's a... Uh, there aren't really those divisions among musicians, but that's a big difference with, and I think that's the mistake that people in the forum had right then. They thought that we were all thinking the same way and therefore it wasn't cool to like this stuff, but I just thought the stuff was cool. And I understood that. And I'll bet they grew out of a lot of that too. Hmm. I, mean, I know some of them, so I know they did. You know, uh, They just ended up growing up into music lovers, a lot of them. Because a lot of them were kids at the time. You know, they were, there were 13 year olds in the message board <laughs> who I know now are like in their thirties. Very interesting. Mr. Duritz, thank you very much. Do you have any parting words of wisdom for our listeners before we go? Check out music. I mean, it is so good and there's so much of it. I mean, there are ways in which the music business is, is harder nowadays and worse in some ways, but the truth is, there's just so much music out there now because it's so much easier to make it. It's so much easier to sell it. You can just upload it on Bandcamp instead of pressing CDs. There are so many great bands and they have a chance to last for longer now because it's not prohibitively expensive to make a record. So bands make records and make another record and make another record. You can make them in your bedroom and people get really good. I mean, that's all the podcast is. It's two guys who sit around geeking out about music they love. This week was our 50th episode and we're not like running out of music. You know, there's so much. And the festival, you know, if you're going to be in New York in April on the 5th and 6th, Underwater Sunshine Festival is completely free. A bunch of really cool bands just playing for you, you know. 
I guess that's the main thing. That's sort of what my life's been about. I grew up loving music. I got lucky and got to play it. And now I play it and I have a podcast where I sit around and try and tell people about as much music that I love as possible because there's so much. And all it really needs is for people to discover it. Don't just pick what you already know you like on Spotify. Put on Pandora and surprise yourself or listen to our podcast or anybody's. And just like find new shit because music needs you. It needs people to appreciate it. I like it. Everybody out there, check out UnderwaterSunshineFest.com. It's going to be April 5th and 6th in 2019. New York City at the Bowery Electric. Also, CountingCrows.com. You can find the podcast on iTunes and Google Play. It's called Underwater Sunshine. Adam, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Thanks for taking the time. My pleasure. All right, sir. Have a wonderful day. I really appreciate this. And your you team. Too. Thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Have a good one. Bop, bop, dealy, bop, bop, ba-doo, bop, zee, bock, a doodly, not bock, sookie, chacha, kooka, baz, a look, baz, a neck, a book, a kid, a good, a dum, bock, doodly, zan, ba-dum, a dack, a bock, a kid, yeah, a zika, bock, a book, a long, gong, doodly, boo, Goodbye.